0: Where Dreams Come From is a podcast featuring successful people from around the world who have pursued their dreams to arrive at a station in life. I'm your host, Sanjeev Chatterjee. I'm a professor of cinema and journalism, and in my creative life, I make documentary films. I started this podcast to explore what it takes for people to follow their dreams, even while being true to who they are, at least who they believe they are. Today, my guest is Stephen Levine, who spent 29 years of his working life as the president of California Institute of the Arts, more popularly known as CalArts. Having grown up in a small Wisconsin town, Stephen could not wait to go out into the world. As he puts it, invoking his distant cousin, Bob Dylan, he wanted to explore where the wind was blowing. After attending Ivy League institutions and becoming a professor for a while, he landed a job at the Rockefeller Foundation to discover the possibility that elite institutions could be instrumental in bringing about social change. His next job as the president of CalArts afforded him the dream of trying this idea out for himself. Stephen Levine, welcome to Where Dreams Come From. I'm delighted to be here, thank you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the circumstances of your childhood, where you grew up, and what you remember most?
1: I, I grew up in a small town in the Midwest. Uh, first, the town of 497 people, and then we moved to the big city, 23,000 people, Superior, Wisconsin. Actually, what I remember best is my mother at the piano. Um... She wanted in the worst way to be a concert pianist. She had the talent, she won competitions, but, but didn't have the financial backing or the confidence to have the career she wanted. And uh, I, I saw the unhappiness of not being able to fulfill the life you wanted. And I guess the other thing I remember best is my dad. He was an old-fashioned country doctor who used to go out on snowshoes to the farmer's uh, farms when they were snowed in. Uh, he carried that same attitude toward the town we eventually moved to, where uh, if a patient couldn't afford to pay, he didn't ask him to pay. And the other thing I remember is knowing that when I went to college, I was going to get out of these small towns.
0: <laughs> As an aspiring storyteller, uh, I always think of very good stories, very often are about the universe in a grain of sand.
1: Absolutely.
0: You seem to have inhabited such a grain of sand in a small town uh, in the Midwest. Why leave?
1: I suppose it was my mother's combining Art with a kind of aspiration to urbanity. I Remember, there were two prints just inside our entrance to our house—one of Central Park and one of a cafe in Paris—and that that really stood for my my mother's dreams. And I, I inherited her her dreams. I thought Stanford was in San Francisco. I remember breaking down in tears when I realized it was in a suburb, not in the city. But I thought I was going to join hippydom and. We were going to be searching for the meaning of life together. I, was, I wasn't interested in the sort of drug aspect of hippie dumb. I was interested in the, the Allen Ginsberg spiritual
0: aspirations. In the late 20th and 21st century, the hippie movement seems to uh, have a reputation of being something off-kilter. There were two companion hippie movements.
1: Uh, one was really dropping out just giving up on 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 society altogether seeking relief in drugs and not a very healthy thing in the end the other was a kind of sense that that middle class culture was stifling there there was a kind of far reaching conservatism that assumed that women should be housewives that is, assumed a whole lot of things that that shut a lot of doors The other part of the hippie movement was about opening those doors. You know, one of the other people from our area was my distant cousin uh, Bob Dylan. And when I first heard his album, the the blowing in the wind, it was, you didn't think that wind was probably blowing in Hibbing, Minnesota where he was from or in Superior,
0: Wisconsin where I was from. Uh, You wanted to go where that wind was blowing. (laughs) Once you uh, left uh, town after school, I, I believe, and you went to Stanford. Was that a kind of a cultural shock? Well, the, the shock was that it wasn't nearly
1: as intellectual as I thought it was gonna be. Uh, I had wonderful teachers and I learned how to read, how to really read, I'd read all my life. But, but the idea of interpreting a book was something that no one had ever exposed me to. Uh, and so it was c- quite thrilling. Um, the sense that i was learning how to think but we weren't really being encouraged to think about the meaning of life we were we were encouraged to think about what how do you interpret this or how do you how do you how do you do that how do you do your your organic chemistry experiment uh, by and large
0: it was a disappointment was this because uh, of what we think of now as the disadvantage of the the ivory tower i think so
1: I think so. The, 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 the quantification of what um, your academic contribution is, is, is really a destructive thing. It, it emphasizes, like our whole society does, a kind of general productivity over the quality of what you actually produce. Now, not entirely, I, I, to be fair, uh, but, it, but it puts an emphasis on a specific narrow area of achievement we need universities to open up more to the to the world to address the world problems although there's a lot of disincentive because as soon as you take any stand on anything you immediately are attacked by the other half of the political spectrum it's it's a
0: challenge how the university is going to play this larger role when did it really occur to you at what stage that this bridge between an intellectual life which is elite and Becoming a problem solver, which is much more, I think, grassroots, that this bridge is first of all desirable, and second of all, <laughs> that it can indeed be built. There was a book published recently about me called Stephen D. Levine Failure
1: is What It's All About, uh, which traces the answer to your question away. And I didn't find it when I was in graduate school at Harvard. I didn't find it when I was a professor at the University of Michigan. I did find it when I went to work at the Rockefeller Foundation. And I was surrounded by, by brilliant people on the staff who had a hunger to address world poverty, a hunger to, to, to use their knowledge to make the world better. I remember the, the head of our health sciences division used to carry this little packet of salts in his pocket. And, and he'd take it out at every opportunity to tell people, you know, if, if, if you can get people to boil water and put this salt in it, we could save something like a million children each year in, in Africa. We, we were near the beginnings of uh, African-American studies, where you met all sorts of people where this knowledge was finally about the liberation of a people still. Uh, women's studies, medical ethics, all things that fed right back into how we
0: we lit our lives. And it was thrilling to be in the presence of that. When you went to the Rockefeller Foundation, uh, it it became really a problem-solving kind of a profession. Is that uh, kind of accurate to say? In In a way,
1: the chance to be at the Rockefeller Foundation was quite an elite thing, but this was elite opportunity being turned to social good. And I guess what in some ways what we're we're hungry for is to the extent that there is an elite that it understand that just is an opportunity to to make a difference to make things better that otherwise you're just wasting the 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 opportunity that you have you buy a bigger
0: yacht I mean it's just crazy at what point in your own life did you? kind of arrive at some kind of a dream or a goal or a vision for who or what you really wanted to be. It really
1: didn't fully take form until I became president of California Institute of the Arts. I carried forward my father's desire to relieve suffering and my mother's artistic aspirations and, and frustration. I saw at the Rockefeller Foundation how unequal opportunity was in the world, uh, that just being talented didn't open the doors for anybody. Everybody needed help propping the doors open. And suddenly, as, as president of CalArts, I was in a position to, to do something to prop the doors open. And I think that the pieces that, that formed me kind of came due as uh, being able to act um, so when I got to CalArts, the, 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 when we were deeply in deficit, which I inherited, the first thing we did was start a youth program for kids in poor neighborhoods of Los Angeles. It was just obvious to me that if people were going to value our institution, we had to show that we cared about the fate of the world. <laughs> um, and it turned out to be true.
0: <laughs> this was in the 80s, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah,
1: there, there were already important things going on. Uh, there have been all along, although with very insufficient attention paid to them. Uh, the, the trouble with, again, with elite things is they have a lot of advertising money and they take up a lot of space in people's imaginations. And it's it's very easy not to to be exposed to what's actually out there. When we started those youth programs at CalArts, part of it was I wanted our students to be exposed to the facts of life, the social facts of life, but also to be in the presence of the inspiring leaders of these neighborhood cultural centers who against all odds were delivering for their neighbors. And to have that help form their sense of life. I, I remember I, I once went to something in East, East Los Angeles and they were so surprised that I was, said I was gonna come to them as opposed to expecting them to come to me. Well, to me, that was just basic politeness. I was asking them to consider collaborating with us. I was doing the asking, so I should go there. But they were used to people from prominent institutions just always assuming you come to us because we're more important.
0: In your own career as the president of CalArts, has the meaning of education changed? It's changed in my my lifetime in terrible ways
1: college when i was a student was still fundamentally about self-realization about discovering who you were and what you wanted to be but it was not seen as frontline job training if you found yourself you would then find what you wanted to do in life as money started to push to the top as poverty increased as the middle class declined uh, the pressure on people to turn their investment in college into immediate work opportunity is totally understandable. Uh, and in some ways, people have no choice. It's, but it is a huge loss. A striking example was that people who were close to their ambitions, whether or not they were making much money, were actually happy. Uh, and they were part of communities and they were they were living... They were worried. I mean, the money is money. You need to pay for things. Uh, And then we discovered this alumnus who was a very successful writer for men's magazines. And he was dying on the vine because he was using his talents in a way, abusing his talents turning it just to the making of money rather than uh, the creation that he had become an artist to be able to act on. Um, And again, it it kept circling back for me in a way to my mother's experience that uh, you've got to find a way to connect with, with your dreams of accomplishing something positive.
0: At this stage uh, in your life, uh, do you, have you thought uh, in any kind of structured way about what should be the elements of a fulfilled life? Uh, my father used to say there are really only
1: three or four things that make up a life. He said, if you're lucky, you have a family. Maybe you have one or two friends in the world. Maybe you have a hobby that gives you satisfaction. And ideally you have a job that both supports you and 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 gives you some kind of satisfaction. And in a way, the challenge is how, how you divide up your sense of purpose within that. I've been very lucky because being able to do this job at CalArts, my job and my life and my inter my hobby and my wife as an artist, it's all one simple package. Um most people are not that lucky to have the parts come together so so beautifully
0: what i hear you saying is that happiness a is more than just your income and a significant part of that is purpose
1: volunteering and and contributing something is for most people an extraordinary experience a lot of kids have sort of pretended in order to have the resumes that get them into good colleges. But to genuinely do it and to feel you're helping is, is such a great feeling that in a way, if you can expose people to it, it at some level, it can be like a drug. We're so driven by my sort of neoliberal economics and uh, the economy is, you just, that's gonna solve everything and you just have to find your place in the economy. People can forget what really will make them happy. I don't know, happiness is not even a big category for me. Uh, satisfaction is a big category. Being able to go to bed feeling like I did something today.
0: When did you begin to notice that mental health becoming an, a real an issue and perhaps even a barrier towards reaching some purpose in life?
1: I have to confess, my first decade at CalArts, even my second decade, our attitude was toughing it out that the world was, was rough and you just had to swallow it and go on. And maybe it's a failure in my, in my leadership there that they've added lots of mental health services, that they're doing much more than we did in our time. And I think part of it is this ever-growing pressure at, at both ends, a, pr- a pressure to succeed at all costs if you are privileged, still the pressure to succeed at all costs. At the other end, there's a pressure to survive at all costs. That has to take whatever your normal mental state is and exacerbate it. The, the living with anxiety as, as a steady state. And in a way, that's what our economy has done.
0: Your book is about failure and the necessity of failure. Will you talk a little bit about it?
1: In my own youth, my mother sensed that she was she was a failure, which she, which she was not responsible for her failure. Her parents Stripped her of a sense of self-confidence and she grew up without money. That's not her failure, but she didn't achieve what she wanted. And so she felt like a failure. I felt like a failure because I thought my job as a young person was to cheer her up and you could never sufficiently cheer her up. And then going off into the world, even with all my opportunities, there there was always a sort of fear uh, that you wouldn't get it right. And in fact, at one stage of my career, I didn't get it right. I had studied to be a scholar of 18th century English literature, when in fact what I was interested in was the 20th century and, I, and social action, not scholarship. I sort of hadn't known myself well enough. Uh, I had a sense of failure that this thing I devoted myself to for so many years. Uh, when I got to Kellarts, I didn't know how to be a college president. I, I was aware of winging it every day and failing a lot of the time. Uh, in a way it was a wonderful opportunity to put failure in perspective because you would you would try one thing and it wouldn't work and you just have to say okay that didn't work i failed at that i got to try i got to try another way because you once you were president you were kind of sort of stuck you didn't get to just sort of say well this we didn't solve this problem. You had to find a way to keep going. It was your responsibility to lead the institution back towards solving whatever the problem was. In a way, that one the big turning point for me was in, in 1994, uh, having gotten CalArts' initial bad finances straightened out, uh, we got hit by the Northridge earthquake and lost the use of our entire campus. And suddenly there there you were, you were responsible for finding how was this college going to survive with no money and no campus. And you couldn't walk away from it. You just had to find what to do. And when you looked at the overall picture, uh, when you discovered that with almost no endowment, you had a $40 million rebuilding project, it looked like the end of the world. But in a way, the job didn't let you see it as the end of the world. You, you had to just do it. So many things in life are about putting one, one foot in front of the next. You know, we realized we're going to have to work with FEMA. I didn't know anything about working with the federal government. So you call up someone on the phone who has done it. Uh, and in my experience, people are very generous. Uh, in terms of uh, offering you counsel. I think people like it because it makes them superior people and lets them feel the virtue of doing some good. Most things aren't rocket science. They are just problems to be solved.
0: What is your advice to a young person who's a freshman who walks into your office? Two kinds of advice.
1: One is if you already know what you want to do, then start doing it. Don't, w- don't wait till you graduate and you have credentials to do it. Uh, if what you want to do is be a singer, well, join a chorus off campus as well as have your activity on campus and just start doing it. Uh, the And I guess the companion advice is, if you're not sure what you want to do, go volunteer a lot of places. Look at people who look like they do know what they're doing and learn from being exposed to them. See if that's really what you want to be doing. Um, and, and one of the nice things about being in the arts uh, with talented kids is you can do it right now. I mean, the jazz players are all out gigging while they're still students. The actors are doing summer repertory. Or, uh, In fact, part of what we had to do is sometimes the faculty didn't like how much time the students were spending, uh, film students who were actually working on a professional production on the side. And the faculty would say, uh, well, you're, you're not you're not here making your work with us. And you'd have to say, well, this is also important what they're doing. It's gonna, and so trying to find the balance between those two things, taking advantage of everything your college offers, but also not letting it consume you. <laughs> that, that's, that's my core advice. Uh, and don't be intimidated. That's my other big advice. I spent so much of my youth thinking, maybe this is my small town background, that there were people who knew exactly what to do And that I was just that I was not from a a fancy background, that uh, I didn't know what to do. I did have this, my father saying that anyone who could fix a car can be a doctor. That helped to have in the background that sort of sense that uh, it doesn't take all that much. I'll tell you a wonderful companion story, which goes to that point. A friend who was a Russian emigre in France uh, was copying a painting in the Louvre. And... An old man was behind him and was said in to his wife in Russian, "He's really pretty talented." And my friend turned around and said, "You're Mark Chagall." And it was Mark Chagall. And as he walked away, he heard Mark Chagall say to his wife, "Imagine that. He knows who I am. that's that's the world. Imagine that. He
0: knows who I am, even though you're a great painter. Stephen Levine, thank you very much for taking this hour. it
1: has been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much.
0: For me, this conversation with Stephen Levine highlights multiple aspects of living a dream. Levine acknowledges that he is part of a continuum in carrying forward dreams that were inspired by what he observed at home in his parents. Breaking away from his small town life was to both carry forward the values learned by observing his doctor father while at the same time addressing his mother's unfulfilled dreams to be a recognized artist. However, it took time and perhaps a good deal of serendipity to land a dream job that combined both aspects of his aspiration, but in a form that he could not imagine in advance. He discovered it while living life. For Media for Change, I am Sanjeev Chatterjee.